0: Open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2, we be looking at verses 5 through 18, Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 18. <clears throat> Last week, as we opened up the book of Hebrews, as we opened up to this, this sermon that calls us to hold fast to our confession, we saw the comparison of of God the Son to the angels and how that he was superior to the angels, that he brought a better message from God than any angel could ever bring, that he was, in fact, the definitive message from God to us. And so we saw that he was uh, 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 the angel of angels, This week, we are jumping in at chapter 2, verse 5, and I'll just kind of tell you from here on out, for the rest of the book of Hebrews, we are going to be jumping in to the middle of a thought, jumping in to a line of argument, to a train of reasoning, because it is, as we said last week, one continuous sermon. And so everything links to everything else, and it flows in this way. And so you will hear me frequently overlap the previous week's text. For you see here in verse 5, as we're going to see in a moment, it begins with the word for. Could have also, that's a valid translation. could have also been translated because. In other words, it's what we're going to read today is rooted in, is based on what we saw last week. And so let's remind ourselves of what we did see last week. That that not only is he the angel of angels, not only is God the Son the definitive messenger from God, but that because of that, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay closer attention to the message we've been given lest we drift away. There was that challenge to us, that that encouragement to us. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, We saw a warning, and it asked rhetorically, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And of course, the answer is you cannot. That if you turn your back on the definitive message from God, there's no message left. There's no place to turn, and you will be lost. And so this is a picking up in the middle of that thought. Now, because this is a sermon, I've decided today that I'm going to preach my way through it, not reading it all at once, but commenting as we go along. And so I'm going to, before we read the text, I'm going to open with prayer, asking for God's help. Let's pray. Spirit of God, you uh, uh, inspired, you directed uh, 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 the anonymous preacher to write this sermon and to to. Uh, preserve it as a letter, and to send it to churches, and to keep it for us down through the ages. And so we ask your help in rightly understanding it, in unpacking all that it says, and in applying it to our lives. We ask your help to take the, the message of Hebrews, and to work faithfulness in us, that we would hold fast our confession of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So beginning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. We must pay attention and not stray from the faith, um, because the next world, he says, belongs to the ultimate messenger, the, 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 the Son of God. You know that feeling, maybe you've had a, a similar experience, that feeling of you're getting on an elevator, you're going up, you, you, you really don't want to go to the meeting you have to go to, and there's a stranger in the elevator that asks how you're doing, and you complain to the stranger, I really don't want to go in this dumb meeting, it's a waste of time, I don't know why the company makes us go to these stupid meetings. And the bell dings, and the elevator doors open, and the stranger gets off on the same floor, walks through the same doors, goes to the same meeting, And is the guest speaker. Yikes. That's embarrassing how much more horrible it is to enter into the next life and find out that the one who rules it was God the Son whom you rejected in this life. That's really the message being given here. He is saying in verses 1 through 4 that we have to pay attention lest we drift away. And he says here in verse 5, why? Because it's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's to God the Son. It is to that messenger that the next world belongs. He is its ruler. And so if you reject the Christ in this life, when those doors open to the next, you're not going to be embarrassed you're going to be damned. Verse six, it has been testified somewhere. We read this in our opening (coughs) uh, 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 psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. You know, the psalmist wrote this of mankind as a whole. Not one particular person, but our preacher here is applying it singularly. And it does raise the question of whether or not that's actually valid. If it's exegetically legitimate to take this psalm and apply it to the one man, Jesus of Nazareth. We will come back around to that. We continue reading in verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And so writer, our, our preacher, acknowledges that we look around in the world and we ask or we scratch our heads going, really, everything's in subjection to Christ? It sure doesn't look that way. But remember back in verse 5, he told us that he was talking about the world to come. In other words, it's not that everything is, is in subjection to Christ now, but that it will be in the next world. Now, real quick comment this does not mean that things are not under Christ's control. There is a distinction between him being in control and everything being subject to him. You see, there are two different ways that something can be subject one is forcefully, and one is willingly. And that's the difference we're we're considering here. So when you're in the the grocery store, and there is a child in the cart, and he's screaming, I want to go down the candy aisle. And mom pushes him down the dairy aisle. He's under mom's control, but he has not made himself subject to mom. He's not willingly put himself under her authority. And that's the distinction being made here is that we do not yet see a world where everything has come under subjection to Christ in a willing way, in the way we will, in the next world. uh, Verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This does not shock you and me, but this would have been a shocking sentence to the original audience, I suspect. You see, to be made lower than the angels for a little while makes it clear that our preacher is talking about one who is not inherently lower, but is actually inherently superior to the angels. Now, had the preacher said, there is one who who is inherently superior to the angels, but he was for a time made, made lower than the angels, had he said, namely, God the Son the same name that he used way back in chapter 1, verse 2, I think many of his audience would have said, okay, we can get on board with the God being superior to the angels. But he doesn't say that. He says, namely, Jesus. Now, many of us are sitting here going, thinking, wait a second, Pastor, you're, you're, you're making a distinction with no difference. And this is where we, we get a little lax sometimes in our theology. You see, we forget that while Jesus and the Son reference the same person, they do point to two different natures. The church has been careful throughout the millennia to describe the the God-man, the incarnation, the hypostatic union, as a situation where there is one person with two natures. The Trinity, by contrast, is one nature in three persons. But the God-man is one person with two natures. And it is, at times, important to make distinctions between those two natures. They are not the same. And here, our preacher points not to the divine nature of of the God-man, but to his human nature. By using the name Jesus, he's not saying it's as God that he's superior to the angels. It's as a man he is superior to the angels. And that's a stunning thing. You see, it'd be one thing if he were superior in his divinity. But we have to understand, and it's more important actually for our sake, that we recognize his superiority in his humanity. How is it possible that a human can be superior to angels in any significant way? And if we are honest about this, we will confess that many of us are inclined to see angels as better than humans. Many of us have wondered if it wouldn't be better to be an angel than a human being. That's not the biblical view of the created order. So how does our author see the human nature as better than angels? Well, let's keep reading. He says of Jesus, He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So already we see the necessity of his humanity coming to light. He had to be a human so that he could die. And right away now you begin to see why the distinction of the nature is important. Obviously, God did not die on the cross. Had God died... Everything would have ceased to exist in that moment. It was the man who died. So these natures, while eternally bound to each other, are still distinct. Verse 10, for it was fitting. He's going to go on to talk about the the death of Christ. I just want to stop and pause on that word fitting. Do you ever think of the death of Christ as a fitting thing, as appropriate, as right to the circumstance? You know, we tend to sing uh, songs about the, the darkness of the cross, about the pain of the cross, about the humility of the cross. In a few minutes, we're going to close with the hymn, And Can It Be?, which expresses shock and awe at the cross. But our author says the cross was fitting. I don't think that we on our own would have the right to make such a shocking claim. But the divinely inspired author says that in the eyes of God, was a fitting thing, a necessary thing, a thing appropriate to the circumstances. We could stop right there and have plenty of reason to continue worshiping. That God saw it fitting to execute judgment on the Son. Continuing, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And I do want to stop and comment on this word founder. So we actually need to look at a couple of things here. The creator perfecter and the founder who is being perfected. But first, I want to look at that founder. That's the version that I have. Your versions may have different words. Some of them use a, a, a pioneer. Some of the versions use, uh, I think one of them uses trailblazer. I think one of them even uses captain, as in the one who's in charge of an explore, exploration, a voyage. Okay? And those really kind of give you the sense So when you hear founder, don't think, you know, well, back in 1962, my dad founded a plumbing business, and he grew it, and he handed it down to me. That's not the kind of founder we're talking about. We're not talking about somebody who establishes a copycat business, no matter how successful it might have been. We're talking about that essence, that idea of pioneer, of trailblazer of the one who goes where no one before has gone. If you want to continue with the business analogy, think about the, the inventor of the smartphone. I mean, 30 years ago, none of us would have said, hey, it's really important that I be online every moment of every day. And now we can't live without those dumb things. He saw, he had a vision, he saw a market that nobody else could even imagine. And so he blazed a trail in business. That's the idea we have here of founder, of pioneer, trailblazer. That Jesus is going to go where no one else has went. That he's going to do what no one else did. And more than that, he's going to do what was never even imagined. It was not even in anybody's head that it was even possible to do what he did. Not only is he unprecedented in getting there, he was unprecedented in even imagining that he could get there. But first he had to be made perfect. Isn't that some interesting language? There are, remember, we've got a situation, we've got two persons in this verse, and one of those has two natures. So we've got the one who is doing the perfecting, the Father. And we've got the one who is being perfected, namely Jesus. And that Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. So what's going on here? Well, obviously, the divine nature could not be perfected. It could not be made better than it was. And so... While we can sometimes be uncomfortable with the division of the natures and thinking about them separately, we see it's absolutely necessary twice already. For the divine nature could not have died on the cross, nor could the divine nature be perfected. This must necessarily be talking about the human nature. But think about that. Does your theology, does your Christology, does your view of Jesus have room in it to contemplate the idea that he was now, don't think for a moment that he sinned and then had to be cleaned up. There is no book in all of the Bible that is clearer on the sinlessness of Christ than the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So our preacher knows full well this is not a question of moral culpability or moral restoration. So what is the question of being perfected? Well, if you were with us some two years ago when we launched our series in the book of Genesis, you may recall one of the important concepts in the opening chapters of Genesis is that there was a sense in which the creation, though without sin, was incomplete, God wanted a world full of worshipers, but he made only two of them. And they had work to do. He wanted a world that was completely under their dominion, but he carved out only one little garden. And they had work to do. Humanity was created unmarred, untainted, unstained, but not yet fully perfected in its obedience. We understand this. We know that there are two types of sin. There are thus two types of obedience. There is the sin that we commit by actively doing something that violates God's law. But there is also the sin that we commit by not doing what we should have done. Adam and Eve were created in that first condition. They had not violated God's law but neither had they yet kept it. This is why we call it the covenant of works. There was work for them to do. Now, when the new human, when the new creation, when the new man, when the last Adam comes along, He is also brought into this world unmarred, untainted, unstained by sin, but he's also brought into this world having not yet actively obeyed. Have you ever stopped to think about this? Had Jesus of Nazareth died when he was, let's say, 20 years old, he would not have been the fitting sacrifice you and I need. Not because he had sinned because he hadn't yet kept all that was required of him. He had to be made perfect. He had to fulfill all the law, not just in not transgressing it, but also in doing it. The covenant of works required him to work. We must remind ourselves that we are not saved merely by the death of Christ. We are not saved merely by the death and resurrection of Christ. We must necessarily also have his life. It's in his life that he obeyed and fulfilled all righteousness and so was made perfect. Verse 11. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. In our systematic theology, the word sanctify almost always refers to the process by which we sinners are perfected. Our catechism says it this way. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. But context is everything, as we saw from the prayer request that went out this week. And in the context of the scriptures, particularly in the context of the book of Hebrews, sanctification has another meaning. It's a book to Hebrews. Think Hebraically. Think like a Jew. To be sanctified meant to be set apart. Set apart for special use. The utensils that were used in the temple were sanctified utensils. Does that mean they didn't sin? Well, it's, we can't even think about a utensil sinning or not sinning. What it means is that they were set apart. Put aside for a particular use. That's the nature of sanctification that's in view here and throughout most of the book of Hebrews. Even in our systematic theology, we talk about two different types of sanctification. We speak of positional sanctification. By virtue of being in Christ, we are holy. And we speak of progressive sanctification. We are, being, we are becoming more and more holy in our actual lives. The former is in view here. That we have been set apart in Christ. And that's why he can go on to say, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I I and the children that God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, our preacher is asking, now, are you beginning to see how it all comes together in the God-man, Jesus the Christ? Do you see the necessity that he become one of us? That he become a human being. We, 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 uh, 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 he's not a, you know, why was he not ashamed to call us brothers? Because we are uh, uh, positionally sanctified. We are already set apart to a holy purpose. It's not that he's not that 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 we are sinless and therefore he's not ashamed of us, but that we are set apart. And therefore, he begins to say, because you've been set apart, God the Son was willing to do what was necessary to make it a reality, to take it off the page of theory, to take it off the page of of the plan of God and make it the the executed purpose of God in this world. And so he's basically making the argument, yes, God the Son was angel-esque in that he brought a superior message, but he didn't become an angel he became a human being. He became one of us. Verse 16 answers the question, why? For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so the preacher is really kind of getting at the point, are you seeing it now? Do you see why God the Son had to become one of us? Do you see why I said it was namely Jesus who was superior to the angels? The human nature was superior. Do you see why he had to be like us, his brothers, in every respect? And why was it necessary? Well, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, that word propitiation is going to slow us down a little bit. This is not a word that gets into our everyday conversations. In fact, there's a pretty good chance that the last time any of you ever used the word propitiation was the last time you read Hebrews. It really doesn't come up much outside of the book of Hebrews. So what is propitiation? Well, so imagine for a moment that a new family moves in next door, and they have got five boys from like ages 9 to 15. It's like, oh man, there goes the neighborhood, those guys are going to be riding their bikes across my lawn. They're going to be playing their music too loud. I can't believe these guys have moved in next door. And sure enough, it ain't a couple days later, you're sitting watching TV one evening, and the piece of your family room is torn asunder by shattering glass. Their baseball game got a little carried away, and the home run ended up in one of your windows. And it's just as you imagine. It's terrible, these boys next door. And so you go to bed angry that night, frustrated that night. I didn't want to have to deal with that tomorrow. I don't want to have to find a handyman. I don't want to have to bring somebody over to repair the glass in my broken window. And you get home from work the next day, and you're frustrated still, and you get on the phone, and you go to call the handyman, and your wife says, "No, no, no, hang up. It's all good. It's fixed. The boys came over today and repaired it. And you walk out there, and lo and behold, it's beautifully fixed. The glass is perfect. They've resealed it wonderfully. They even painted the trim where they had damaged it. They've picked up all the broken glass out of the flower bed below the window. And in fact, they didn't bend so much as a stem or a stalk of any of your flowers. The mulch doesn't even look like they stepped in there to get any of the glass. The boys have done a spectacular job in what begins to happen your whole attitude toward them changes. Maybe those guys aren't so bad. That's impressive. There's some maturity there. They took responsibility. And their action changed your attitude toward them. That attitude change, that change of disposition toward them, that's propitiation. If you like technical terms and you want to Think about another one. There's a related word called expiation. Expiation is the act that leads to propitiation. Expiation is fixing the window. And so you see the, dist- the, the difference. If you are an unreasonable and unjust person, even though they fix the window, and even though it looks like brand new, and even though there is no trace that they were ever there, you might still, in your sinfulness, hold toward them a bad attitude. But God is just. He's not sinful. When the expiation of Christ was made, when he paid the price for your sins, God was propitiated. His attitude toward us was changed. He went from despising us in our sin to calling us his children. That's what the picture that's being painted here is this idea of propitiation. And why, why did he have to become a man to do that? Well, in order to pay the price owed by men, he had to be a man. Man had to pay the price. Man had to uh, keep the law of God. Man had to die the death that sin required. Man had to placate God's wrath to turn it away. And so it was that he became not an angel, but one of us. He did this for us. There is no hint, in fact, just the opposite. Those angels who fell into sin have none of the hope we have. Now, do you still want to be an angel? You see, the call here, the theology here, the doctrine here is so that we will see the beauty of the salvation we have and we will cling to it. Now, I know that I said I was going to preach the passage as I went along and I have finished the passage, but now we need to jump back and deal with some things. First, in this short passage our author has focused almost exclusively on the humanity of the God-man. So much so that we might wonder if the God part is even needed. In fact, if all you had was this portion of the scriptures, it might be a legitimate thing to ask, you know, did he have to be God at all? Wouldn't a perfect man, Jesus of Nazareth, be a fit sacrifice? So why did he have to be God? First, let me dispel a really hurtful answer to this question. A really bad answer to this question. I have heard some say, not some here, thankfully, but I have heard some say that it was he needed to be God so that he could obey perfectly, so that he could live out the sinless life, so that he could do all that he did. But if he obeyed in his divine nature, then we are lost. We're hopeless. For there is still no man who has kept the covenant of works on our behalf. God the Son, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, lived out his sinless life in his humanity as a human being. He didn't keep the law of God because he was God. He kept the law of God as one of us. Now, to be sure, he had the advantage of not having been born into sin, as we are, But so did Adam and Eve. He obeyed fully in his humanity. When we say things like, well, to err is human, we discount the glory of Christ. He was fully us and never erred. Never sinned. And you say, how can that be? Come on, pastor. Even if I wasn't born into sin with all the sin all around me in this world, how could it be that he didn't fall into sin? Well, have you ever asked yourself why it is that Jesus is always away praying? Why it is that we see him in synagogue every Sabbath day? why it is that we see him reading the scriptures, why it is that in the Gospel of Luke, and he's 12 years old, he's in the temple getting instruction. He grew in stature and wisdom. He absorbed the word of God. He lived according to it. He prayed. He had fellowship with God. He availed himself of all of the conduits of grace that are available to us. And he lived under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit he was filled with the spirit of god as are we it was in his humanity that he obeyed perfectly and lived out a perfect life and the second reason so so he did not have to be god in order to live sinlessly. So then why did he have to be God? Why is the God-man both God and man? Two reasons, and they overlap. If you or I were to go to hell, we would suffer for eternity the wrath of God against our sin, and that would be unbearable what did we read in our Old Testament reading? What did we hear in the book of Daniel? What were the crowds that were before him, over whom he was given dominion, those who came to serve the throne? Thousands of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. These are simply meant to be enormous numbers. There is going to be, uh, how did God say it to Abraham? If you can count the grains of sand on the seashore or the stars in heaven, then you can count your offspring. If the wrath of God against my sin is such that I can barely bear that that wrath and will not for all of eternity, then how could any mere human bear the wrath of God against the sin of 10,000 times 10,000? He had to be God also so that he could withstand the wrath of God. And related to that, if he's going to pay the price for the sins of millions and billions, then he must be worthy and worth millions and billions. And as glorious as we are in the creation of God, we are finite beings with finite value. The one who would pay the price for millions and billions, must be of infinite value. He had to be both God and man. He had to be God so that he could bear the wrath of God and so that he would be of infinite value as a redeemer, as a purchaser of ransoms. Now, let me get back and address the verses that I kind of skipped. I only touched on them briefly as we were going through. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. It had, uh, uh, it's been argued in verses 8, 9, and 10 that the, the, the preacher in Hebrews takes these out of context. He takes verses that the psalmist applies to all of humanity, and he applies them to a single human being. Let's take a look at how the psalmist uses them, and we're going to see that argument vanishes pretty quickly. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, let's take that last part first. Everything in subjection under his feet. The argument goes like this that the psalmist is talking about humanity. And I don't necessarily disagree, but that doesn't mean that the Hebrew's use of it is invalid. For I would ask you, has humanity subjected everything under our collective feet? Have we as human beings solved all of our problems? Have we subjected the world to us? Is everything under our feet? Ask Moroccans from this past week. When the ground under their feet, the literal ground under their literal feet, literally shook they would argue, no, we don't have everything under our control. And you say, well, that's nature. Maybe we weren't supposed to ever have control over the tectonic plates. Okay, let's just focus in on humanity. Have we rid ourselves of crime? Have we rid ourselves of wrongdoing? Does there even appear to be any hope that we're going to? You see, our writer, our preacher looks at the psalm, looks at Psalm 8, says, yes, the psalmist is talking about all of humanity. Ideally, idealistically, as he was created to be, as he was intended before the fall. Are we really still today crowned with glory and honor as a human race? Is all we do that honorable and that glorious? You see, the psalmist is depicting humanity as a whole, but he's depicting the ideal created intent of humanity. And our author of Hebrews says, and we finally have that. It's no longer an abstract concept. In Jesus of Nazareth, we have that kind of humanity. One who really is worthy of a crown of glory and honor. And one who will one day have dominion over everything. And that's what our author is doing. He's not violating the sense of Psalm 8. He's acknowledging the sense of Psalm 8 and going, it's finally real. Here it is in our world. We saw it happen. Jesus of Nazareth, the sinless one, has done all that was required of man. He's obeyed even through suffering. And so he has become what humans were meant to be. Remember, Adam didn't just need to not do anything wrong. He also needed to do that which was right. And then he would be free to eat from the tree of life and and, and live forever. This one has done that. This new human... This founder of a new race, he has accomplished these things. And part of what we're supposed to see here is that this was the only way for the created intent to be restored, to be reclaimed, you know, we sometimes think that, you know, we should just wipe the earth clean and start over again. How many of us have thought to ourselves, and I'll admit I've thought this, wouldn't it be great if we could just get out of America and go someplace and just live, have a Christian culture and just live according to the Bible and, 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 and not have all of these outside fluids? And then I would remind myself that back in 1607, that's exactly what we set out to do on this continent. And I don't know how long that Christian ideal lasted, but I'm going to guess it didn't make it through the winter of 1609 when they started eating each other. We've tried this before. And I don't care how great you think Geneva was during the Reformation. It was still full of sin. And I don't care how ideally you view the New Testament church. You just got to read the book of Corinthians and go, it was still full of sin. Isn't that one of the lessons of Noah and the flood? God did wipe the earth clean. He did give us a fresh start to expose to us that the problem is not in our environment, it's not in our societies, it's not in our surroundings, it's in us. That on a clean earth with nobody out there to cause us to sin, what's the first thing we have recorded about Noah? He sinned. We're the problem. We need a new us. We need a different humanity. We've got to be part of a new human race that isn't like the old one. And this is where it becomes necessary for God, the God-man, to be man. That's why verse 10 says it was fitting. And that he was the founder was made perfect. The man who if he had if if Jesus had simply been conceived without sin, simply born in Nazareth, simply raised in the faith, simply successfully, successful in navigating this life without error, that would be remarkable and amazing, but that would only save him. He had to be made perfect through suffering of death. If Jesus simply lives out a perfect life, then he, and hypothetically his offspring, could live forever. But we're still lost. So the perfection had to go all the way to death so that we could be saved. We had to benefit from his demise. So to establish this new line of humanity, to to allow the existing line, the the descendants of Adam, to, to benefit from it, a recompense had to be made for the sins of humanity. Justice required payment. And that's what we we're talking about. This infinite debt of our sin had to be paid by one of infinite value. And so he had to navigate. He had to remain faithful. He had to continue sinlessly through all the beatings, through the mockings, through the scourgings, through the, through the people spitting on him, through those who were subservient to his divine power, lording it over him like he was nothing. He had to endure all of that so he could be the trailblazer, the founder of salvation so that he could be the one of us who finally did all that was required, who finally satisfied God, who finally kept and honored God rightly. because he was like one of us, because he wants to claim us, he calls us brothers. He calls us family. He says we are one of him. So he is the one who was the man among all men. The last Adam the one who has finally accomplished all that needs to be accomplished. That's the message here in Hebrews chapter 2. That We should cling to him in light of all of this amazing truth. That we should hold fast to our confession of Christ as our hope. For he has accomplished what nobody else had what nobody else can, what nobody else ever will. If we ignore such a great salvation, what hope do we have? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being willing to send the Son. Thank you for uh, uh, seeing this as fitting. As something you wanted to do, son. Thank you for coming, for willingly subjecting yourself to all of the humiliation, all of the suffering. Spirit, you for carrying the man Jesus through all of that, in perfection, in uh, 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 absolute obedience to your will and to your word. We thank you for applying what he earned to our lives, to our account, to our ledger. Let us see the the, the glory and honor with which he is rightly crowned. Let us realize that he is the one who will one day Take dominion and control over all things. Let us hold fast to him now. We pray this for the glory of his name and ask for his blessing.